0: How real is Jesus to you? Whether long time in church or maybe church, first time in a long time. How real is Jesus to you? Last uh, week, our Easter afternoon, after we had a nice meal and family gathering time, I chose to take my family to see the movie that came out. Heaven is for real. Any of you see it this week? encourage you to go, maybe. If you want. Not always encouraging people to go to the movies, but uh, this Christian movie is about a Wesleyan pastor from Nebraska whose three year old son had a near death experience on an operating table. And as they began to discover, he saw some things and met some people that he should not have known about and should not have been able to visualize. Well, the first person he met, he said, was Jesus. Well, the film depicts, I don't know how true it is to actually what happened in this Westland church in Nebraska, but it caused a little bit of a ruckus in the congregation. <laughs> caused a little bit of ruckus with a lot of people. Westland pastor ends up writing a book. Remember my mom saying she was reading the book? They came out with the movie. Heaven is for real. Three-year-old is pretty hard to, you know, fool a three-year-old. He experiences what he experiences, maybe. Does it have any truth behind it? Why would a congregation have trouble with the question that Jesus is for real and he actually met a little child if there was a near-death experience? You see, we're confronted with the reality that that which we believe should be backed up with experience. And we long for that experience on the other side of heaven. We believe, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that you will see Jesus after you die. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, is what the Scriptures teach. Well, do we really believe that? Well, of course, Carrie. Come on, move on. Let's get going with the show. Well, no. Do you really believe that Jesus is real? That he is the one who was, who is, and is to come? Now, we do long for the reality of seeing him face to face, that he is the one to come or the one we will experience if we were to die and pass from this life. But sometimes it's the here and now experience of Jesus that is tough for us. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. The one who was, who is, and is to come. Well, today we begin a series of messages called Conversations with Jesus, because I believe the reality of Jesus becomes more experienced, I guess, in our life, I should say, if we look not only with anticipation to the future, but we look to the past and we see how he was in conversation and in experiential reality with his followers. And so just as surely as you try to explain to somebody uh, a friend of yours that they've never met, well, they're sort of like this and this and this. You start telling stories about your friend. Maybe when you went somewhere, some cool event that happened to you, some traumatic event that happened to you. And as you tell me stories about your friend, I start to know your friend more, and your friend becomes more real to me. And if I'm on Facebook, they really become real to me probably because you've got pictures popping up all over the place, right? Well, if you want Jesus to be real in your life and you're not experiencing him as being real, maybe you've been a follower of his or maybe you're just seeking him out this morning trying to discover this spiritual God thing in your life, then it would be valuable to you to go back and read the stories, in particular the conversations of Jesus that did happen in this book Because the ones that did happen are indicative, probably, of the real conversations Jesus would have with you in your life if He was here in the flesh form today. Now, we know that He's here through His Spirit, all right? But sometimes, Spirit's tough because you can't see it. But just because you can't see Jesus doesn't mean that He's any less real for you in your life in this present moment, whether you're in a low point. Or a high point of life. How real is Jesus to you? Is He real enough to the point that you actually wake up in the morning and have a conversation with Him and you can hear Him? And not only that you speak to Him and hear from Him, but that you literally sense and embrace a physical manifestation almost at times that He's there. Now, there's other times, like, he is not here. He is, like, far gone. I do not experience. But I've always believed this to be true, and I believe you do as well. It's usually not because God has moved away. It's usually because I've moved away. How real is Jesus to you? The conversations of Jesus, we're going to walk through these. And uh, this morning, I want to, by the way, uh, no notes today today. In fact, the note sheets that's in the back of your chairs is a generic note sheet. It's going to be that way for this month. I'm going to give it a try. It's going to freak some of you out, like, oh, my gosh, no, no points. Well, you're good students. Take your points. The pens are there. And there's no slides today. All right? Oh, that's going to really be a bummer for a lot of you, right? Yeah. <laughs> and part of this was intentional because I want us to, nose in the book, but sometimes we get in student mode rather than experience mode. And these conversations with Jesus are stories to be told and stories to imagine, if you will, not as make-believe, but to move yourself back to the Jesus who was so that you can experience him as the Jesus who is. And to do this, I want to lead off with a video clip of the scene of the place of our first conversation The first conversation we're going to look at is the conversation that Jesus had after the resurrection with his disciples and in particular with Peter. When Jesus draws near to a broken hearted man, a broken hearted man because of the experiences that happened right prior to the crucifixion. I don't know if you've been to Israel or not. It helps you to go to Israel because you start to experience the stories that truly were. In fact, one of my favorite places in life is where this story takes place. The Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not messed up like a lot of the other places that you find in the Holy Land. What I mean by that is that you can't change the Sea of Galilee. What it was 2,000 years ago is what it is today. Oh, you can build some houses and some other kinds of buildings around it. But if you were to go there, and some of you have been there, you would find yourself entering into the world of Jesus. I found this clip of another pastor in a journey that they took to present-day Sea of Galilee. It just sort of helps set the backdrop to what we're going to be experiencing in John 21. Of Galilee, And it's traditionally believed that this is the site of the events that we read about in John 21. Uh, Jesus has made a charcoal fire. The disciples have been fishing all night. And Jesus calls to them and tells them to throw their nets into the other side. They do. They catch an amazing number of fish. And then it's on this shore here where Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you truly love me? Three times Peter has let Jesus down and three times he was given the opportunity to declare his love for Jesus. It's amazing to think that Peter, the fisherman from North Galilee, uh, then goes on to follow Jesus, uh, to preach on the day of Pentecost, about 100 miles south of here in Jerusalem, and then to travel over Europe, spreading the gospel uh, that we still believe in. Well, that gives you just a little bit of a snippet of the Sea of Galilee area of which we will uh, be parking for this story. And we just all should go some year. What do you think? Just all get in a plane and go take a big old tour of Israel, huh? If you have your scriptures, open them to John chapter 21. If you don't have your scriptures with you, then... I'm going to look them up on your smartphone or something. I don't know. And uh, if not, just hang with the story because here we go. Actually, what I want to do with the the John 21 story is tie back in a little bit to the resurrection. The resurrection experience uh, that Thomas had was that he doubted Jesus was alive. Jesus appears in their midst after the resurrection, and he uh, shows him his hands and his feet. And uh, he reveals to him, and by the way, that's one of those things in that movie, Heaven is for Real. The little boy said that Jesus had markers, and finally they asked him, where's the markers at? And he, said in his, he pointed to his palms and to the top of his feet. And Jesus um, revealed himself to a doubting Thomas, some doubting disciples, and they believed that he was real. Verse 29 of chapter 20 of John says this, Then Jesus told them, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, the Gospel of John was written somewhere after 70 A.D., possibly 40 years, 30-40 years after the life of Jesus. It was before John was exiled to the island of Patmos and some of his later trials in life. So you have a disciple of Jesus Christ writing about the stories of their, his experience and the disciples' experience looking back. And the purpose that he gave us, his gospel, which is one of four gospels, is simply put that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life. So it wasn't like, oh, that's just a nice bestseller book I can put out there for a while. And uh, just re- No, he had a purpose that you may know Jesus, that you may believe in Jesus, and that you may have full life in Jesus. And I find it interesting with this. He says, many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples uh, were done, which are not recorded in this book. And uh, can you imagine everything that was left out? I don't know how he condensed it to what he condensed it to. All right? So the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the disciples had sort of a, they had a lot of emotional swings going on, all right? A couple Sundays ago, hosanna, hosanna, the Hosannas, right? He's coming in celebrating the, the hopeful Messiah. And then the events from this high came to a crashing low with the trials and the execution on the cross. And, that, and then the appearances to Mary. And then to Thomas and them gathered together. And then there was this emotional high. And then they're excited. And then what happens? Where'd he go? Where did he go? Now John, as it says later in John 21, says that Jesus appeared to them at three different times strategically as disciples. But it wasn't just all rock and roll after he rose from the grave. There was a little bit of, I don't know, some mild... um, I don't want to say disappointment, just but maybe just some disillusionment as to, well, what's going on now? And that's where we find it in John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, the Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Gennesaret, different names as it went by. Tiberias is one of the cities on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus ends up appearing to them, and here's uh, the particular story that goes forward. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Je- Zebedee. Who are the sons of Zebedee? Uh, James and John, all right? They were fishermen as well. John is the person who wrote this book, all right? <clears throat> and two other disciples were together. All right, they already lost one, right? Judas. So we're down to 11. And so now we're, we got we l- got seven disciples that happened to be together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. You ever been disappointed in life where you said, I'm I'm just going back home? Do you think that's what's happening here? It's hard to understand fully what's happening here, but I do believe that there was some sense of disillusionment. Okay, now what? And, well... I'm hungry and I, I need some better clothes and I think I need to go back to my job. So you go back to what is comfortable. But you need to understand this, and I'll just speak it straight up in life. You will never, ever go back to your job once you've experienced Jesus. You may go back in a vocational sense and have employment, but if you've met Jesus, you never go back. And they couldn't go back either. They went back fishing in part for that, and I so I, I don't know whether you're a teacher, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a, you know a lawyer, whether you're a. I don't don't know. I have different professions in here—a realtor, uh, you know, an officer. We got, you know, a funeral home director. We got actuaries, right? You know, I got to start naming off all your places of employment. But you need to know this: if you've met Jesus, you really don't ever have the ability to just go back to your job because something has begun to change in you, especially if you've chosen to be a follower. And so you begin to freshly discover. This whole kingdom world and your place in it. And sometimes vocationally, you stay in that role, but you're never going back. But they went back. What else do they do? That was part of it because they didn't quite know what else to do. But the other part of it was Jesus had told them on two different times, it's recorded in Scripture, I'll meet up with you back in the Sea of Galilee. Because that's where they hung out. That's where they had shared their life together. That's where ministry begun. So they go back and they go fishing. So they went out and they got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. So here I have some fishermen, and this is along the Sea of Galilee. You can just picture a boat out there, and they didn't go fishing with a fish line, all right? They went fishing with nets, and they go fishing in the evening, beautiful evening it probably was, in through the nighttime. The sun starts to break over the horizon. Nothing. Zippo. Zero. This is the reason I don't fish. If they called it catching, I would go. But fishing, no, somebody invited me fishing the other day out here on the ocean stuff. I, that sounds pretty cool. I'll, I'll check into that kind of deal. But I've never really done a lot of fishing in my life because I don't have the patience for it. And I feel like, oh, my goodness, I just spent the whole evening and I didn't accomplish anything. Now I know there's other reasons to go fishing: community, relaxation, all that kind of stuff. But I'm just that's sort of how I'm wired. So they didn't catch anything. That's why they were fishing. Okay. All right. So early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Why does he say, "Hey, hey it's me, it's Jesus"? Or why didn't they look over there and go, "Whoa, it's Jesus, man"? They didn't recognize as Jesus. I think one of the reasons that you have these appearances of Jesus where you don't recognize Him is because He was getting them used to not having His physical presence. His spiritual presence would be with them after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come, but they did not recognize Him. My goodness, they they lived and worked with Him for three years. Now, maybe in His glorified, resurrected body, um, there was some change in dimension to it, right? Mary didn't recognize Him, but here they didn't recognize Him he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? It's a colloquial kind of language in the Greek there, which is sort of coy and friendly. Hey, man, you caught anything? You got any fish? Now, if you've been fishing all night and you've not caught anything, do you want some, you know, Joe kind of person walking on the shoreline yelling out to you, Hey, how many you caught? Uh, Get out of here. Go back home. All right? But he's doing something masterful with them. Remember how the disciples were first called to Jesus. And what he called them to. No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. Now, what I want you to do here is think in terms of how he first called them, because John, as he sets up his story, he's writing it a number of decades later. He has a different way of capsulating the story of Jesus. And that which the other synoptic Gospels put more at the front end about being called to be fishermen, John puts at the back end of his Gospel. Look at Luke 5, if you got a chance to flip there just real quick. Luke 5, and this should uh, ring a bell. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Then, he had finished, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, to Peter, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard again all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. That's key. Remember that. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinner, sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. Now you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. The Luke 5 is at the beginning of their calling. And here we are, post-resurrection, the emotional roller coaster up and down. They're not quite sure what's going on. They're out there having fished all night. We see this figure on the shoreline, and he says to them, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net end because of the large number of fish. Because of the large number of fish. Do you think that there was some bell that went off in their mind? Maybe, excuse the pun, maybe something they're like, wait a second, something's a little fishy here. <laughs> then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's that? John. John, can you think, man, they're hauling in the nets. Woo, look at the cats. This is pretty cool. Hey. And his eyes were opened. And he looked up on that shoreline. And he said, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. There's Peter. There was an uneasiness in his heart. He knew, even though he had seen Jesus at one of the prior appearances, that there was some unfinished business. Why? Because of how he had denied Jesus. And so he was just waiting and longing. A man with a broken heart. And we've all had broken hearts maybe because of what other people have done to us. But have you ever had a broken heart because of what you've done to someone else? Or a broken heart about what you've done to God? Well, this was a man with a broken heart. And he seized the opportunity... To, to, to maybe have some type of encounter, some reconciliation moment. And, and here, he didn't care about the fish. What a great haul of fish. They were about 100 yards away, a football length away from the shoreline. And, and he had his loins gathered around him and he put his, his outer garment on. He jumps into the water. And, and No walking on the water this time, I guess. But you know, and he's going and he's heading there and he's sloshing his way through and he's coming up to experience his Lord and Savior, Jesus. Because Jesus is still in their life. And Jesus is still blessing their life. And Jesus wants to be in communion with them. Some of you in here this morning, you need to understand this. It doesn't matter what's gone on before in your life. When it comes to God and His Son, Jesus Christ, He truly does stand on the shoreline and He calls out to bless your life but He wants you to have that hungry desire to come and meet and be with Him. Maybe Jesus is not real in your life because you beat yourself up so much about what you have or have not done, and you think God could never want to be in a conversational relationship with you. You're wrong. You're wrong. That's not our God. He wants to be in relationship with you. And if you have any inkling of a desire, I encourage you to fling yourself out of the boat. Fling yourself out of the boat and go to Him and see how He will minister His grace. Let's watch how He ministers His grace here. The other disciples followed in the boat, verse 8, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Levi's walking around trying to fish I'm not quite sure. I want to um, picture this. Picture what Jesus does. He has them gather around a campfire. Okay. Now they are at the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee holds tons of memories for them. It was the Sea of Galilee that he calmed. It was the Sea of Galilee that Peter had walked on before. It was on the other side, the the, uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, that the, the demoniac, the man of the Gerasenes, Jesus, cast the spirits out from all right. He fed the five thousand on a hill around there. Do you think that here we are? So this is the epilogue of John's gospel. You know, and an epilogue, is usually done for two things. One is to sort of bring the whole story together and one is to point to what's to come. And I think both things are happening here. So here's Jesus. He circles them up around a fire pit at the place where they've done all their ministry. What do you think they started talking about? I think they started to reminisce. I'm a nostalgic kind of guy. You know, you're kicking back, talking about stories, things that happened with your friends, with your buds. You know, this weekend we had sort of one of those super parent weekends. Uh, my oldest son, Ryan, uh, is a film major at his college at APU, and they had the premiere night for all the short films that the th- uh, film majors were doing in Beverly Hills. So we went to be with him and all of his friends, the people he'd done these films with. And we were at the Writers Guild Theater, you know, dress up, black tie kind of situation. It was pretty cool. We had a lot of fun doing it. And one of the funnest things I had, though, was just thinking about all the friendships he has gained through his college years and, you know, junior year, another senior year, just be reflecting and hanging out. And those friendships will carry with them. And sure enough, picture come flowing after that. And then Supermom got on a plane at LAX at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning. And Melissa flew back to be a part of my other son, Zach's prom back in high school in Indiana. So she's probably crashed this morning. <laughs> but I tell you what. You know, when I saw the pictures of Zach and his friends and the joy just that he's able to try to finish out his schooling there as we'd hoped for and promised. You know, he's going to carry those friendships with him for a while. It's like you getting together with your friends, thinking about it around a fire pit. And you're talking about, you know, hey, this, we did this in college. You did this in high school. You know, here the disciples were. Remember when? Remember when? And that is around a fire. That's interesting. Because Jesus is getting ready to do something miraculous in Peter's life. There's been a revelation. There's been an anticipation, Jesus. Now there's going to be a confrontation. Because there's unsettled business about what Peter did before the crucifixion. You see, if you just flip back a couple chapters to John 18, what do you find? You find in John 18... Verse 15, Simon, Peter, and another disciple were following Jesus, that's John, because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the courts of the high priest, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple went out and got him, brought him in. Verse 17, you are not also one of the disciples, are you the girl at the door, asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire, they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Verse 25, as Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and saying, by saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Are you a follower of Jesus? Publicly, it's a lot harder than in private, isn't it? Jesus was going to confront Peter about the three points of denial. And he brought him back around a fire, just like he was. And he did it in a public setting. Because sins that are done in public oftentimes need to have confession in public in some measure. And Jesus knew that the disciples, you see, they were a little concerned about where Peter was in all this. They saw this. Jesus, the red, flaming, hot person, I'll never deny you! For the cock crows, you'll deny me three times, Peter. He was flamboyant. He was bombastic. There was a sense of arrogance to him. He felt a privileged kind of position. Never would I do that. And then the dominoes fell. One, two, three in public. Jesus knew that the other disciples had concern about is Peter in or is he out. We had one traitor who killed himself. Is Peter sort of borderline? Jesus knew that Peter needed to be restored in a public kind of setting. And so he sits around the fire, They're reminiscing about their journey, and then he pulls out the question and he asks, him. he asks them the question that is not the question I might have asked. I mean, if I, think about it. I might have asked the question, what were you thinking? What was going on with you? Where would that arrogance and pride come from? I, I, I would have had a lot of other questions for Peter. But Jesus cuts to the quick. When he said to them, Bring some of the fish you have caught, Simon Peter climbed aboard. He dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. That's typical of a fisherman, isn't it? Tell you exactly how many fish they caught. <laughs> but even with so many, the net was not torn. And he said, You know, come and have breakfast with me. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he's raised them from the dead. When they had finished eating, they're sitting around the fire, breaking of the bread and the fishes. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, call him Simon, not Peter. Why? His name was changed to Peter, which meant rock. He was, nothing, he was nothing close to a rock coming through the experiences they'd come over. So he we went back and called him by his, his original name, Simon. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, most likely the more than these was looking around at the other disciples. Why? Because he was bombastic and arrogant. He was self-confident. Hey, I won't deny you. They all may, but not me. Peter. Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said an interesting thing here. He said, feed my lambs. If you are in a place where you feel estranged from Jesus, Jesus is not very real to you, I want you to know this about our Lord and Savior. He's a straightforward man, but he's also a tender man. And when he engages you in conversation, he doesn't rake you over the coals. But he will be direct, and he'll go to the heart of the matter. And he knew the heart of the matter here was the issue of Peter's love for him as the Lord and Savior, versus Peter's love for himself and all of his status and and all of the trappings around him in his life. Insecure in many ways, true. But he still was a pompous kind of individual. And, and Jesus said, hey, listen, let's move past all that. Let's just let that stuff go. Forget yourself. Do you love me? And you don't find him jumping up and down here. He says, you know that I love you. And so Jesus then says, then if you love me, I want you to come back and begin being a part of my work. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus had to ask him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. It hurt him to have his Jesus say to him three times, do you love me? Well, Peter, what do you think? What do you think about Jesus when He knew you were going to deny Him three times? Do you think that was like a, a, a nice fancy tickle on the bone or something? No. There is grief and brokenness that happens in our relationships. And there is grief and brokenness that can happen in our relationship with God. Whether you've been journeying with God a long time, or maybe you're just trying to figure out how you can have a relationship with God. But you need to understand this embrace the pain and the brokenness of it. But then begin to endear yourself to the conversations and the words of Jesus that He would have even privately with you through Scriptures, through direct anointing of the Spirit, while it's just in still moments. And receive from Him words of embrace. Because on the heels of the revelation and the anticipation... And the confrontation comes reconciliation and restoration. Jesus wants to restore you to a healthy right relationship with God the Father. Our God is faithful. In spite of our faithlessness, and Peter was experiencing this, now, I think what happened this particular moment, Jesus in his kindness, he knew that there had to be some type of public setting for him to say, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he's like, yes, you know, I love, I love you. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And by the way, I mean, there's all kinds of studies that are done with sometimes the languages and things behind here. You know, the first two times it said that the Greek word used is agape by Jesus. And, and Peter responds with phileo, so which agape is true love, phileo is friendship love. But then the third time Jesus says, do you phileo me rather than the agape me? And then he's like he's taking a step down or maybe he's accommodating Peter. Well, I, I'm not quite sure that we need to go there and all that. In part because Jesus spoke in Aramaic and in Aramaic there's no distinction between those terms. And in the Greek you can find other places in Scripture where they're used interchangeably, the agape kefleo. So we can dive into all that. But the main thing that you really need to see here is that Jesus is addressing the issue of love. Do you love me? Not, are you going to church for me? Are you reading your Bible for me? Are you out there witnessing for me? You see it all begins with love. If you don't have a compassionate love for Jesus, you will uh, you will bog down, you will get weary, you will be a failure anywhere in ministry and in life. Do you love me? So he has this public little setting here where he reinstates Peter. He restores him in front of the other guys. And this is important because they're going to have to follow him. He does become the rock. I mean, just a few days later, he's on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit. He's up there declaring and preaching. You wanted to make sure the rest of the gang was like, yeah, he's our guy, he's our guy. All right? So Jesus does it in a public setting, but then he pulls him aside for something else. And they begin going on a walk down the shoreline, I believe. Alright. And this is what we find him saying there. He says, I tell you the truth. When you were younger and you were dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you, you went where you were wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. It said Um, historically, um, that Peter was crucified in his later life by request upside down in Rome because he didn't want to be associated with the crucifixion of Jesus. Though these words might have been stinging words to him in part, they were also encouraging words because it's like, wow, I'll get to do that. I'll get to lay down my life for you just like you laid down your life for me. He was excited to know he got the chance to do, do a do-over, right? And, and he was able, it's not over until it's over like we talked about last week, he was going to be able to live for Jesus sacrificially to the point of giving his life away. And so these aren't necessarily stinging words. And then he looks at him and he says, Oh my goodness, is not this reminiscent? Follow me. Follow me. The restoration of him back into ministry. The joy of being back in relationship with his Savior. Knowing that God's grace is sufficient to cover all. And the power of his resurrection was able to mend everything that was broken in his heart. I am so grateful for Jesus. And I don't know all the other conversation, of course we don't, that went on. But Jesus isn't like keeping you in the doghouse. Okay? When you seek Him and you ask for forgiveness and there's this reconciliation, you declare your love on Him, Jesus is like, hey, we got it? We good? All right, we good? Okay, let's go, man. Follow me. me. Stop being stuck. Just get up, listen to His voice, move forward in what God's doing in your life. Jesus is that kind of individual. He doesn't hang around with grudges. He didn't probably bring up, hey Peter, remember, I know we talked about it one time already, but man, that really bummed me when you denied me three times. Done. Follow me. Let's go. Let's go. Satan wants to get us looking back on all of our junk. Jesus says it's covered with the blood of Christ. Let's move forward. Change. Our God is changer. I want you to know wherever you're at in life this morning... Jesus wants to have a conversation with you concerning his revelation, his reconciliation, and his restoration in your life. Will you be obedient to him and open up all to that he has for you? Peter didn't quite do well right after that. He turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? Peter, come on. Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple John would not die, but Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did, love verse 25, the last verse of the whole gospel. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. I'd like to read those books. A couple things I want to just say in closing is this. it doesn't matter how other people experience Jesus or how they serve Jesus. In conversations with Jesus, there's a lot of this one-on-one that comes and happens. And in that conversation, I want you to know as it relates to ministry, Jesus doesn't use perfect people. He uses flawed people, forgiven people. At the heart of any ministry, restoration, You ever hope to do, you need to have a love for Jesus. It begins and overflows from there. And in that ministry, do not worry about the other person. It is unwise, it'll be unfruitful for you to compare yourself to anybody else in ministry. So I say that first thing to you as it relates to ministry conversation run quickly to his embrace and feed the sheep. But then the second thing is this. I want to ask you, how would you respond if Jesus said to you, do you love me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning, through your presence and through just the of, recalling of this story, I pray that if there's anyone here who questions whether they love you or not. Maybe they don't even fully believe in you or not because they don't think that you're real. I pray through the Spirit that you would begin breaking afresh new in their life and they would come to a place of saying, I love you, Jesus. And that they too, as with Peter and these disciples, would choose to follow you all the days of their life. So Lord, for anyone here who has maybe never crossed that line of faith of saying that they love you, May they just simply take an opportunity such as this in the song we're about to sing and embrace you and commit their life to you. And Lord, for those in this room who've been following you maybe many years, but we've become bogged down, gone back to our old jobs, our own way of thinking maybe, rather than realizing that you've called us and redeemed us to set us out on a purpose, that you've given us an invitation to proclamation. I pray, Jesus, that we would hear your voice to us this morning. Whether brokenhearted or not, that we would hear your voice to us this morning that would just simply say, feed my sheep. Lord, we do love you. We look forward to more conversations with you. We worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this concluding song together. The ushers are going to come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings as well Lord, your connection cards. If there's any way that you want to be encouraged to where you're at on your relationship with the Lord, you can mark that on the back. We'd be glad to follow up with you. Let's sing together.